broadcasting common ground, the Deep Foundation Institute's podcast channel. In this series, Interview with a Survivor, our hosts, Lucky and Tim, will be discussing near misses, problem projects, and resolutions. In today's episode, Greg Ryder shares his story about the design, construction, and eventual arbitration for a support of excavation project located between a roadway and a railway line. Welcome back to DFI's podcast, Broadcasting Common Ground. I'm Lucky Nagarajan, and I'm here with co-host Tim Siegel. Hi, Tim. Hi there, Lucky. This is the third episode in our series, Interview with Survivor, where our guests share their experience when problems arise, which is inevitable, right? Today, our guest is Greg Reiter. Greg is the president and CEO of Burkle and Company Contractors. Hi, Greg. Welcome. Hello. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Tim. Hey, Greg. Lucky, you may not know, but Greg and I worked together at Burkle in the years prior to his role as CEO. Greg is always thoughtful when trying to solve a problem. He takes his time and he tries to look at multiple angles. That's a rare quality. In contrast, I think most of the time we see only our own positions and then conflicts arise because the situation becomes polarized. Greg is a perfect guest for this series. Because of his rare gift of being kind of a peacemaker, I know that he is involved when things get difficult on a project. That is very unique position to be in, I would say. Also, not for all, right? Um, this episode is a bit of a departure from our previous two in our Survivor series. So in this episode, the failure um, if we can call it that, didn't directly involve the practice of engineering. It was about the contractual side of our business, which is very important as well. But before we jump into the project, Greg, could you tell us a little bit about your professional career and also your new role now at Burkle? Sure. So I've been uh, with Burkle since uh, 1999. Uh, prior to that, uh, I worked for GeoHydro Engineers there in the Atlanta area, uh, left GeoHydro and, uh, and went to work for Burkle uh, in their Atlanta office and uh, progressed uh, from a, a field engineer to uh, project manager to assistant regional manager. Uh, and then had the opportunity uh, in 2009 uh, to relocate to Kansas City um, in our corporate office and, uh, and work with Alan Roach, our, our previous uh, president and CEO. And uh, Alan retired uh, about three and a half years ago, um, and, uh, and I took over at that point. Greg, let's set the stage for our listeners. Uh, this project is an existing roadway on a hillside in the Midwest that runs parallel to a railroad track. There were four main players in our story today, the DOT, the general contractor, the railroad, and Burkle and company contractors. I understand that Burkle was bidding to construct a sole nail wall on the downhill side of this existing road. The sole nail wall was designed by the DOT. What complicated the project was that the railroad had its right-of-way very close to the downhill edge of the pavement. The DOT identified this in their bidding documents and required that the successful bidder uh, protect the railroad right-of-way with temporary shoring. So if our listeners can imagine the purpose of the sole nail wall was to allow the installation of underground utilities adjacent to the existing roadway, but the railroad right-of-way prevented the excavation from being daylighted in the hillside. So in fact, the DOT had envisioned a contractor designed temporary system on the railroad side of this temporary trench. Is that, do I have it generally correct? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good description. Uh, you know, in, in, in one way, it would have been a very easy job, a very easy soil nail uh, job if it were not for the restricted access. And 
the restricted access was all driven by the fact that the adjoining property, as you said, downhill from the roadway uh, was owned by the, um, the railroad. And there was about a 15 foot wide uh, easement where the construction work uh, downhill from the roadway uh, was allowed to take place, but otherwise would have been a very straightforward, very easy soil nail job. Uh, but given the constraints, that's, that's what made it uh, difficult. So Greg, was this originally planned to be a design build contract between Burkle and general contractor? No, originally it was a, um, it was, as Tim said, it was designed by the DOT and we simply bid uh, the design that uh, the DOT put out for bid. So yeah, not originally. Greg, I, I think I've heard several folks, but I think I may even have heard you say a few times when you enter in a design bid build contract or pursue one like this project, uh, you call it playing the dumb contractor. And I, I know that's a, a really kind of a, a little that's not really being literal. That's that's that means something. What what is it when you say that term or when others say that term? Uh, to us, it means you're you're simply taking on the the responsibilities uh, of a of a contractor. You're you're simply going out there to build what somebody else has designed. So you go into it with a little different mindset in that you're not carrying the risk for you know the design working obviously. Uh, you're not carrying the risk for it necessarily being constructible. Uh, so it's, it's a little different mindset than, than if you uh, own the responsibility of the design itself. I got you. So when you say that, what it, what it does, it kind of puts uh, some of the risks. You mentioned the risk that the design performs well and the risk that the, the design is constructible. It kind of places those risks appropriately on really the designer in which in this case is the DOT right. as opposed to on Burkle where, you know, on other projects, Burkle is the designer. They're the design builder. And so, and you would take on more risk in the design build scenario. That's correct. Okay. I think uh, it is key to note that this point in your story it was understood that Burkle, general contractor, and the DOT had aligned goals, right? At least as far as you knew. All three of you wanted to install a soil nail wall or something similar to that. And of course, it had to be on schedule and within the budget. Right, Greg? Yep. No, it uh, probably, as, as with most projects at the beginning, um, all everyone's goals were aligned. So yeah, uh, complete the work uh, on time and, and within budget. That was, that was what uh, everybody had in mind at the beginning. Uh, if, if you think about the, uh, all the players, general contractor, DOT, and Burkle, you were the subcontractors. So how was the chemistry in terms of looking at the project and looking at the schedule and also looking at the budget? Uh, chemistry is fine. You know, we, um, uh, we would have been fine uh, installing the, the original design as planned, uh, being that we are also a design build subcontractor, we oftentimes will bring, you know, ideas to the table to a project, uh, whether or not we, we actually take on design responsibilities or not. Uh, if we see that there's potentially a better way that can save some time or save some, uh, some money or, um, you know, provide a, a, a better uh, project for the owner. Um, and, and, you know, we, we do that quite often. Greg, so as y'all moved, um, let, let me just ask you this. When you worked uh, initially on the project, did you, did you move right into uh, the contract phase or was there an extended period of time as you guys uh, kind of developed your team together and, and back and forth with you and the, and the GC? I think initially we, after we bid the project and, and started having discussions, um, 
with the uh, the apparent low bidder, the general contractor, uh, we we were not signed up um, immediately under contract, and and part of that was because a uh, you know discussion ensued about whether or not the as designed soil nail wall was indeed the the best approach, and and whether or not there were other ideas that could be utilized. Uh, to to support this roadway uh, and and save some time and maybe save some money, uh, particularly as it related to the need for the temporary shoring to protect the railroad's property. And that, but you know that's not uncommon, right? In our in our market today, a set of plans hit the streets, people bid it, and then suddenly there's this hub of activity, almost like a beehive of trying to everybody finding a better way to do something, everybody or trying to find a lower cost, better schedule or a better fit. Right. I mean, that's. Yeah, no, that's, I'd say that's pretty, that's pretty typical. Once, once you have players that are formally involved in a, in a project, yeah, it's quite common for, um, for all sides to kind of put their heads together and, and, once there's a team in place and, and figure out if, if there's some efficiencies to be gained by, uh, by looking at it a little differently. So in terms of the general contractor, um, Greg, was this general contractor someone new to Burkle or it, was this general contractor someone who uh, Burkle had done previous projects with? We, we had done a little bit of work for them uh, previously, not, not a long standing history by any means, but I think we had done one or two projects with them uh, prior to this job. Nothing of this size, some smaller work, but uh, yeah, we had a little bit of a history with them. So Greg, as I understand it, you uh, and, and your colleagues at Burkle did offer an alternative uh, to the soil nail part. So the DOT designed the soil nail wall, and you moved uh, to provide a different type of retaining system to replace that soil nail, right? Yeah, so the, the DOT's design was a soil nail wall, and they had specified uh, four levels of soil nails, and, and that's where the, the difficulty, as you can imagine, uh, came into play. So uh, the first and second tier of sole nails probably would not have been uh, that difficult, but once you get down to the third and fourth tier, you know, say 20, 25 feet below the top of the roadway, you know, you're into a very narrow trench situation without this uh, temporary shoring to protect the railroad's property. Um, so what our guys came up with was an alternate using a, an H pile. Um, you know, soldier beam and lagging wall uh, with a, um, a single layer of uh, tieback anchors to provide lateral support. So the, the, the concept was with one level of, of tiebacks, uh, you would limit the access requirements for a drill rig to get in there and, and install uh, whatever kind of ground anchors, whether it's soil nails or, or tieback anchor. So the beauty of the plan was we'll have one row, we'll keep the rig up high and minimize the, the access requirements that would be required, you know, once you got down to the second, third, and fourth uh, levels of, of excavation. Sure. And for maybe some folks that aren't as familiar with, you know, soil nails, right, they're spaced about every five feet so you can imagine that uh and they're probably like two or three feet off the bottom of the excavation so that's pretty deep compared to a tie back would might probably what maybe in the upper one third of the excavation right, right? so right there's a big advantage um oh do, do you, was there also a schedule advantage in addition to access advantage that you had on this yeah we we believed that the um that the uh, soldier beam and lagging tieback option uh, would have uh, reduced our schedule, and I think it would have also allowed the the general contractor who had follow up work behind us. Right, this this job was much bigger than just simply a retaining wall. The the ultimate goal here 
uh, was for this retaining wall to allow the roadway to be reconstructed because it was in, in pretty bad shape uh, due to deterioration of the hillside. So uh, they had some follow-on work with the, um, with the roadway uh, repaving and, and, and all of that that had to take place afterwards. And we felt like uh, going this route would allow uh, their work to follow on and start sooner potentially uh, as opposed to waiting for the entire sole nail wall uh, to be complete. Very good. Um, Greg and Tim, um, it's time for our sponsor break. Speccrete is a grouting and concrete additive company with an emphasis on the deep foundation industry. Probably best known for their water retentive additives for auger cast piling. Speccrete has used their, lang uh, their knowledge of underground grouting and concrete to create unique problem solving products for many deep foundation applications, including high mobility grouting applications, pumping of low strength grouts and a system of products to meet the new uh, Deep Foundation Institute and EFFC guidelines for Tremi Concrete. Thank you, Speccrete, for sponsoring this episode. We have John Anderson from Speccrete, who is the president and owner. John has been involved in concrete admixtures and concrete-related products since 1979, when he went to work for Master Builders a long time ago. Um, he has been running Speccrete for over 25 years and is the current chair of DFI's Manufacturers, Suppliers, and Service Providers Committee. John, it's great to have you here. And John is a very good friend of mine. And welcome to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Lucky. And uh, thank you, Tim, for suggesting that we uh, sponsor this uh, this uh, episode. It's really been a good uh, experience. Um, I thought the first interesting uh, topic might be the connection between Speccrete and Burkle and company. Um, you know, I'll start by saying that at one time, uh, Speccrete was known as the Concrete Chemicals Division of Intrusion Prepack. And I was hoping Greg could share a little bit about uh, Mr. Burkle's history and his start at Intrusion Prepack. Yeah, so so Mr. Burkle worked for Intrusion Prepact um, uh, early on in his career in Chicago, and at some point um, they sent him to Kansas City to to run a, a regional office uh, for Intrusion Prepact. And um, lucky for the rest of us, at some point he decided. Um, that he wanted to go into business for himself and um, decided to uh, launch Berkeley Company Contractors Inc. Uh, here in Kansas City and, uh, and has, has grown it into uh, what it is today. But yeah, uh, definitely some, some intrusion prepack connections uh, from back in the day. The other thing, I, I hope you don't mind, I'm gonna tell a little story and uh... Tim's familiar with this one, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Greg, too. There was a, you know, we, we were, uh, you know, supplying additives, uh, grout fluidifiers for auger cast, but, you know, I'm not sure we totally understood everything we were, we were trying to do, you know, and, and I was learning the business and uh, went out on a project where Burkle was out in, uh, in Arkansas and having difficulty getting cages to drop into the grout. And Tim was there and I was there and we were struggling looking at it. And the thing that really came out of that job for us was that uh, Mr. Burkle really encouraged us to solve the problem. Uh, and, and he, you know, he said to me that, that, you know, if we solve this problem, we're not only, you know, helping Burkle and company, but really helping the whole industry. And, you know, it really became, our, our goal over the next couple of years to really solve that problem. And it, it became the issue of water retention that, that Lucky mentioned in the introduction. And Greg, and obviously, Mr. Burkle is a, a, a big influence on me and I, I'm sure on you. And I just wondered if you could share some other things that, you know, might be similar to that, where he influenced other people or, 
or you know brought or brought around you know, processes uh, that that might have improved because of what he saw out there. Yeah. So when when he got into the augered pile business, um, there there was no equipment shop down the street that you could go rent or buy uh, augered pile equipment from uh, in order to get into business. So uh, you know that uh, he he saw the the kind of the brilliance in the auger pile technique. And he thought there was something there that, that would take off and, and become a, a really strong pile type across the country. And uh, he, he pushed the envelope, um, you know, with what equipment was available at the time. And uh, as pile depth started to get deeper and pile diameter started to get larger and existing equipment that was, somewhat available at the time was no longer you know big enough strong enough to to take care of, of what needed to be drilled he decided the only step forward was to to start manufacturing that equipment um, on his own so that's how we got into uh, manufacturing uh, auger bile equipment and, and and tooling and it was all out of necessity you know we didn't he didn't have time, you know, if, if we had a piece of auger break back in the day, he didn't have time to wait for, um, you know, a supplier that didn't have any on, on hand to, to bring us more. So, you know, he wanted to become self-sufficient and um, he really approached, you know, kind of all aspects of the business uh, in, in that way. Um, and, you know, nowadays, you know, there's, there's plenty of opportunities for people to rent and buy equipment and tooling, but, but that's probably the, the, the biggest thing is, um, you know, developing the auger pile across the U S in various markets, various geologies and, and pushing the, the equipment and the, and the methodology uh, to keep up with, uh, with the demand. The other big change that happened for you guys was the ownership that he put into place. I thought that's kind of an interesting path that he took. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Yeah, he was, uh, he was way ahead of the curve. He, um, back in 1976, uh, created uh, an ESOP, uh, and it was a, a relatively new uh, concept uh, of employee ownership. And um for the longest time through the 70s, 80s, and, and 90s, uh, Berkeley Company was about 30% employee-owned, and, and that was just a gift that, that he gave uh, to the employees. And as, as he started to um, uh, get up there in age and, and realized that, um, you know, he was not going to be with Berkeley for forever, despite... Uh, his, his best intentions, he knew that, that he wanted the, the company to, uh, to go on uh, after his passing. And so he really pushed hard uh, to make that happen. And, and he did that by uh, passing the company on to, to its employees. So, you know, we're proud to say since his passing, we are we're now 100% uh, employee owned. And obviously we, we owe all of that to, uh, to Charlie Burkle and, and his foresight, you know, there's, there's a lot more companies now that, that follow the ESOP model, but he was definitely, uh, one of the first to, to take that route and, and see it all the way through, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about it. It's, it's another thing to, to actually, uh, see it all the way through. And he did. Mm -hmm. Okay, just to shift gears a little bit, one question that always I'm always curious about was why do you feel that auger cast uh, piling here in the U.S. typically uses grout, and then tip in the European countries, almost everywhere else around the world, they're using concrete. Do you have a little maybe history or think of thinking of why that stayed that way? Or I I would say that that probably stems from. Mr. Burkle's own personal experiences coming up as a young engineer and, and probably dates back to his days at Intrusion Prepack because I know a lot of the work that he, he was involved in uh, was, was dealing with grouting uh, pre-placed aggregate. And so when you've got pre-placed aggregate for like bridge foundation repairs and, and things like that, 
you, you're typically pumping, uh, you know, a neat cement, you know, grout mixture. Um, and I think at the time when the original patent for the auger pile came out, you know, before the hollow stem, uh, you basically had to install a, a grout pipe adjacent to the hole, you know, before there was anything um, like a, a hollowed stem auger. And so obviously you're not going to be able to pump concrete through um, through a small diameter grout pipe. So I think his experience with was was with grout and um, it um, that's that's all we know. You know, we've we've never done anything but pump grout in uh, auger cast piles. Uh, but I think it all stems from his initial experience uh, back in the day with intrusion prepacked. Excellent. Well, listen, I, I really, again, appreciate you guys asking us to be the sponsor and uh, look, looking forward to hearing the rest of rest of the story on that project, too. Thank, Thank you, John. John. Thank you, John. Here. Great to have you. We are back from our sponsor break and ready to continue with our conversation with Greg Ryder Burkle. Lucky had mentioned before the break that there were aligned goals between Burkle, the GC, and the DOT as far as uh, Greg knew. In that spirit, Burkle offered an alternative to the DOT design soil nail wall. We all know that it takes some project time for an alternative to be considered. Was your alternative successfully selected? And then what happened? Can you elaborate on that, Greg? Sure. So the, the short answer is yes. Our alternate design was was selected and, and approved. Um, the unfortunate part is I, I believe it, it took about two months uh, for that to take place. Um, during that same period of time, our, our client, the general contractor, uh, had approached the railroad and was was engaging them to see as a as a backup plan uh, whether or not they would allow you know construction activities to take place on their property. Um, but ultimately, uh, the DOT did approve our design, but again, it, it, took, uh, it took about two months. And so that was uh, probably the beginning of when we started to sense that, you know, the general contractor may have been under some pressure uh, due to the length of time that it took uh, to get that that um, the redesign approved because I believe that at that point their schedule had had already started. So some of their construction time uh, we we came to realize had been eaten up by you know the several months delay while the design was being contemplated. You know, Greg, uh, you know, I think some of our younger listeners who haven't been through this project probably don't realize that when you go in and offer either a value engineering alternative or a, you know, and particularly a design build alternative is that it takes a lot of time. It's not just a matter of the best idea wins that the owner has to consider a, a lot of things other than just the design. They have to consider how the risks get rearranged. They have to consider about their really what happens if you're, design build alternative costs more or takes more time and those kind of things. So there's, it's not unusual. Is it when you offer alternative for there to be a substantial amount of time taken for review? Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's definitely the case. I mean, the, the design itself has to be vetted from a technical standpoint. And then as you alluded to, all the things that stem from utilizing that design during construction, those risks have to be um, evaluated by the owner as well. Yeah, I think that's very true. Uh, what Tim just mentioned and Greg, uh, uh, it, it's never easy to get an alternative to be, uh, you know, <laughs> different than what it was before and uh, get that approved by a DOT. That's even more difficult. <laughs> Uh, probably a private owner has a better say in, yes, I would like to do this than uh, a DOT, right? Who have their budget and who have their schedule to match. And uh, uh, DC is always looking at the time clock, right? How much bonus they can get at the end of it. Right. So, um, so you found out that there was a problem when the general contractor held the payment, right? 
Um, does it bother you personally when your client doesn't pay? You're, you are, you've been in this business for a very long time and uh, you are a seasoned veteran. But it seems like it would be hard not to be angry, at least to some degree, after working side by side with the general contractor, only to find out that they were quick to withhold payment, even even though you have some relationship with them. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think. Um, I don't think it's possible to not personally get a little upset when when somebody uh, withholds payment after you you feel like you've you've done a good job. You know, usually what happens is it's not right off the bat. You know, typically it takes us anywhere from 30 to 60 days to get paid on, on average anyway. So it's not immediate, but, um, you know, usually at the, it's not uncommon for a project to have, uh, normal pay cycles at the beginning. And so you are lulled into thinking that everything's fine. And then maybe towards the latter half of the project, which is kind of what happened here, uh, that's when the payments uh, started to, to stop. And sometimes it's an owner-related issue. Sometimes it's a client-related issue. You know, typically we have a, a client in between us and the owner. And, and so you never know really what's holding up the, the, the payments. Um, but yes, once you find out that the owner has paid the general contractor and then the general contractor is sitting on your payment, yeah, then then it starts to become a little more personal. Greg, so what justification did they give for withholding payment on you all? Uh, their justification was that uh, due to delays with the shoring system, uh, really it was, it was two main things. One, it exposed them to liquidated damages because the, um, the end date, the finish date was not met. So the, G, uh, the, the DOT was going to assess them liquidated damages. And the other schedule related issue was this pushed the, the road work that had to be done after the shoring work into the winter months. So you can imagine you know, once you get through mid-November here in the Midwest, you might have a few mild days every now and then, but it's not uncommon uh, for things to get to get cold uh, once you get into late November, December, and January. And, and doing asphalt paving uh, during those months in the Midwest is usually not an option. So um, the client made the decision to switch to concrete paving. Um, which brought along with it uh, an increase in cost. Uh, so really the two drivers of, of their claim against us was uh, liquidated damages and uh, an increase in, in cost due to them having to switch the, um, the material used for the, the, the repaving of the road system. So Greg, I understand that the um, there was a contractual issue though that in your contract, you had a construction duration and you met that, right? Yes, we, we had a duration. Uh, we met it. Uh, we understood that the, at some point that the, that the client, um, their schedule with the DOT uh, was not the same. Their, their, a scheduled timing had started, you know, months earlier. And um, so there was a disconnect there. Um, but through the process, you know, we still felt like, okay, this is the best way to go. The job's going to still finish on time. Um, you know, they, uh, our client um, offered to pay us uh, premiums for bringing in crews to work uh, weekends and extended hours. Um, telling us that it was cheaper for them to do that than to be assessed LDs. And they wanted to build as much of a cushion into their schedule as possible. But, but yeah, ultimately there was a disconnect between the schedule that um, they contracted uh, with Burkle versus the schedule that they contracted with uh, the DOT to complete the work in. 
Right. So they had, so the GC had a hard date with the DOT, but your contract with the GC was a schedule for completion, not, and it didn't have that same hard date. Correct. A duration without any firm uh, start date and, and end date. So basically whenever we started, uh, we, we owed them a construction duration of, of so many days from that point forward. So Greg, uh, uh, after listening to everything that you were talking about in terms of how quickly miscalculation led to uh, one thing led to the other. And at the end of it, like, you know, uh, general contractor decided to withheld, uh, withhold the payment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a very difficult situation to be uh, with a contractor that you know you have worked with and for some some part you can actually trust, right? Did ever Burkle felt like they should have walked away? Or if not, uh, were there any steps that were taken? No, we never, we never felt like... Um we should walk away. Uh, you know, our philosophy is, uh, and I guess always has been that, that you need to see the job through. Uh, most of the subcontracts that we end up signing probably have verbiage in there that says we can't stop the job. So there's that. Um, but philosophically, um, you know, we've always believed that if we keep working hard and, try and get the project done as, as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Yes, there still may be uh, an argument or a disagreement at the end of the project that's going to need to be a res- resolved, some sort of dispute. Um, but if, if we work as hard as we can while we're on the project, in theory, there should be less in dispute. And that's always good for everybody involved if if you're arguing about a, a smaller sum of money um, than if you uh, walked away from the middle of a project and then forced the general contractor to bring in somebody new who's probably gonna charge more money and maybe take longer to get up to speed. And so in that scenario, you're undoubtedly looking at a dispute uh, for a much larger sum of money. So. Yeah, we we never thought about walking away, um, but you you definitely start dotting your eyes and crossing your T's more uh, because you know that you're you're potentially headed into a contractual dispute when it's all said and, and done. Yeah, I, I think that's a great advice, Greg. I think uh, uh, we can see um, the values of Burkle, right? Values of Burkle being in business for so long and also with the passion that you have for every project that you work on and for the industry, I think that's, that's great. Um, for a subcontractor, um, you know, was there a chance to avoid this ordeal by any chance? Possibly, I mean, you're much smarter in hindsight, right? Than, than you are at the beginning, um, obviously, you know, we we have we did a post mortem as as Tim uh, mentioned, and probably the biggest thing was had we really had a, a good idea of what the um, the general contractor was was up against um, schedule wise, and had we had an appreciation for the disconnect between the schedule that they signed us up for versus the schedule that they had with the with the owner the dot you know that um that would have allowed us maybe to say hey let's let's just move forward with the the dot's design we don't know how long it's going to take to to get a an alternate approved um and then the other side of it is not knowing you know we're not road builders so we don't have an appreciation for what work takes place after we're gone right so it's it's tough to say for sure that that we could have um that we could have uh, avoided it but yeah at the end of the day we proposed what we proposed and we trusted that the general contractor was going to evaluate our proposal be it the price, the schedule, the terms and conditions that came along with it, 
and do an assessment on their own as to whether or not it was a good fit to use Burkle for this project. Obviously they, they did. So we believe that, that they still had, um, that we were still the best option uh, for them to complete this work. So y'all didn't just uh, say, hey, you're holding my payment, goodbye. You pursued uh, getting the rest of the payment that they were holding, right? Yeah, we, we, we tried the, the diplomatic approach first and, um, and, and made several attempts to, to work it out uh, and, and bring it to resolution. And those attempts uh, were, were not successful. Uh, so we eventually filed for uh, arbitration, as I think that was outlined in our in our contract as the as the specified dispute resolution uh, method. Why why did you reach out in a diplomatic way? What what reasons you brought you brought that up specifically? What's your uh, is that a strategy? Uh, because lawyers are very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the simple answer. I mean we're. We're, we're not, uh, we don't make a living uh, taking people to court. We'd rather get an issue resolved and keep a client as happy as we can and, and go on to do work for them again. Um, but sometimes you're just put in a position where that's not an option. And, and there's, there's, there's too big a gap between where you're at and where you need to be. And so that was one of these cases where the, the amount of money that they were uh, looking to withhold was was more than we were willing to stomach, so we had no choice but to file for arbitration. Uh, but yeah, you always want to try and settle things uh, directly if you can. Um, but if you can't, you have to do what you have to do sometimes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's really a long road that you had to go through. Um, after going through this, would you say that you prefer arbitration or court settling? What do you think? I, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer that for construction and engineering related disputes, that arbitration is, is the way to go. You have the ability to, um, to, to get an arbitrator on board that has construction and or engineering experience so that they, they, they understand the concepts that are that are at play, uh, as opposed to, you know, a jury of, of your peers that might not grasp some of the, you know, construction or engineering, uh, issues. So yeah, I'm, I'm a believer that if, if you have to go through a formal dispute resolution process, I mean, both sides benefit from, from the use of, uh, of an arbitrator as opposed to a jury. Greg, I've been through at least one arbitration. And in this case, I had three arbitrators and they were very well versed. And I think both sides had to agree to those arbitrators. Is that the same case? Was that, is that true in your case? Did you have three? We, we had one, but, but I think that's the, the use of three is a common practice as well. Um, but yeah, in this case we had one arbitrator, but yeah, both sides get to provide input uh, into who is selected. So it's, you know, it's, it's designed to be a fair system so that there's no bias on, on the part of the arbitrator um, that's ultimately chosen to, to oversee the proceeding. And would this have been called binding arbitration? Mm -hmm. I mean, so this was final. Yep. Well, tell us, um, our listeners now want to know what, can you tell us a little bit of the results of the arbitration? Yeah, so it was it was a ultimately a win for Burkle. So um, the key element that the um, that the arbitrator found was that our client was free and clear to engage Burkle to provide, um, in this case, the uh, excavation support uh, system um, and evaluate our schedule and price in terms of conditions against our competitors and ultimately choose, you know, whichever subcontractor they believed best fit their approach to the job, irrespective of what contract terms they signed up for with the owner. So the key element to the dispute was the fact that 
uh, as we discussed early, um, the, the GC had a firm start date and a stop date that didn't change, um, yet they elected to contract with Burkle for a floating duration of so many days. And it was their uh, right to do that, but it was also their risk to do that. So ultimately everything boiled down in the arbitrator's mind to schedule all of the costs, whether it was liquidated damages or um, the premium for materials, all of that ultimately tied to a schedule delay issue. And so uh, the arbitrator found in Burkle's favor. So we ended up winning the case. Ah, that, thank God. <laughs> that's good to hear. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Greg. I think uh, um, this was such an amazing story. Amazing story, long road, but um, definitely a tough learning experience, I would say. Um, I mean, we saw how you just started out as, you know, having a, a everything explained in terms of what your role was, what, what you were actually doing, and um, the schedule, budget, everything was so well explained until something had to go wrong, right? right. Uh, uh, that was just something that no one had anticipated. And even when some things went wrong, I, I mean, it, it was great to hear how Burkle stood their stand and didn't let go of any, you know, um, the client's expectations or general contractor's expectations and um, everything together, you made it work for them right? You made it work for them. And then you provided a very good uh, project to them, project success to them uh, in terms of uh, how Burkle completely did the construction and, you know, um, handed it over to them right on time. Um, and I loved, I loved uh, the history, uh, you know, lesson between uh, Specrete and uh, uh, Burkle. And Char Charlie Burkle is definitely a passionate person who, actually had a vision uh, to see where Burkle should go after he left. That was wonderful to hear. That was wonderful to hear. Um, thank you so much for sharing that story. Yeah, and it was, it was Charlie Burkle's passion that, that um, would not allow us to walk away from a job midstream. It's, it was in his DNA. Um, anybody that works here at Burkle knows that that's not an option and it wasn't an option. And, and that all started with Charlie Burkle. So yeah, that's, that's where that comes from. No, that's, that's great. Yeah, that's great. And also the differences, right, uh, Tim, like you, you, you have gone through the arbitration and you've heard so many stories of court settling. Um, and it's really was great for our listeners. I think how, um, Greg explained what the, uh, what the complications were in both, both sense. And, what made them win. So that, that was great. Craig, thanks so much for sharing the story. Uh, as we close, uh, I'd like maybe for you to share a little bit about the contract process for you and how do you get, when, when you are working on a project and trying to get a contract in place, are there some indications that things are going well? And are there some indication things are going not well? And do you mind sharing those with us? You mean in terms of just ne negotiating the contract initially or through the execution of the work? Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. So in what I find is that if folks are willing to talk about contracts early, it's better. And I just wanted to know if you had some kind of good practice or uh, things that you know in history that you realized this is how to get the project off very well, as opposed to one that it sounds like it may be going to have some contract difficulties. Yeah, I'd say the biggest thing is 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 doing all the work up front and, and being uh, detailed in the scope of work that you're agreeing to provide, the, the price that you're going to provide it for, and the time frame that you're going to provide it for. And, you know, that starts probably with a, a detailed uh, proposal on the front end when you're in the bidding phase of the project. Um, 
but the reality is the proposal you submit is worthless after you submit it, uh, unless you incorporate all of those items into the contract. And, and so that's where, that's where the disconnect, I think, can initially take place. If, if you outline you know, what you're gonna do, how much you're gonna charge for it, and how long it's gonna take you to do, and the conditions that you'll you'll perform the work in, if that doesn't make it into the contract, um, then your client doesn't truly understand what they're buying and what they're not buying, right? So it works both ways, but getting a, a good scope of work uh, clearly defined uh, in the contract so that, that you're clear on what you need to provide and that your client is clear on, on what they're buying is is the key um, because if you start arguing about who is supposed to do what in the middle of the construction at you know at that point it's it's much <laughs> it's harder to resolve yeah so you might as well get it all out uh, on the table uh, before you get uh, get out in the field and and that's 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 the best way to, to set it up to be successful I believe I, I think so that's been my experience as well although. I'm not a contractor like you, but even in engineering, that's the case. Yep. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you uh, for being here and sharing your story. And it was, it was really great. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Greg. of DFI, we hope you enjoyed this episode. The views, information and opinions expressed during Deep Foundation Institute's podcasts are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of DFI. DFI does not verify or take responsibility for the accuracy of the information contained, nor does it warrant that the information contained herein is suitable for any general or specific use. The podcast is available for private non-commercial use only. Editing, modification or redistribution of this podcast is prohibited. Proudly brought to you by our series sponsor, Peer Research, and today's episode sponsor, SpecCrete. Thanks for your time. Keep on surviving.